0: to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm Andy.
1: And I'm John. And we've been going down the American Film Institute's 100 years of film scores, their list of purportedly the top 25 scores in American cinema history. We're down to
0: number eight on their list. Which means that on this episode, we will be discussing Elmer Bernstein's score to the 1960 Western The Magnificent Seven.
1: Magnificent Seven was written by William Roberts, based on the Akira Kurosawa film Seven Samurai, and it was produced and directed by John Sturgis.
0: Andy, give us a sense of The Magnificent Seven. The Magnificent Seven, just like Seven Samurai, is about a poor farming village that is being menaced by a gang of bandits. And eventually the farmers get fed up and decide to hire seven tough dudes to protect them.
1: The bandits are led by Calvera, who is played by Eli Wallach. And the seven tough dudes are played by, in roughly descending order of magnificence, Yul Brenner, Steve McQueen, James Coburn, Charles Bronson, Robert Vaughn, Brad Dexter, and Horst Buchholz as the young kid whippersnapper of the group.
0: So the story is basically those seven guys gather as a team and then go down to the village and fight for it. And some of them live and some of them die and they beat the bad guys. Good enough? Yeah,
1: good enough. (laughs) Hey, Andy, have you ever been to the Grand Canyon?
0: (laughs) I haven't, John. I happen to know you've been there.
1: Yeah, I was just there recently. I took this cross-country road trip with my friend Lane, and we stopped at the Grand Canyon. It was my first time going to the Grand Canyon. I had told some people that we were planning to do that, and everybody had told me, wow, it's really, really great. It's even better than you think it's going to be. It's better than you can imagine it being. So I was kind of prepared with that already in mind. And it was still better than I could have conceived of going in. It is the most truly awesome, spectacular, just too much for your eyes to deal with. It is the grandest thing. Mm-hmm. Well, I took a little hike down below the rim of the canyon, down to this place called UA Point, which I highly, highly recommend if anybody ever has a chance to do such a thing. This incredible, super panoramic view all through the canyon. It's like four complete fields of vision's worth of just the most canyon. But anyway, I took this hike down there, and I did it by myself, so I figured I should listen to some music as I took this hike. And I was kind of trying to figure out what I should listen to. Any guesses what I listened to?
0: Um, based on context, yes. But let's say uh, you listened to the Grand Canyon Suite by Ferdy Grofé. <laughs> Did you listen to that?
1: Nope, it wasn't that. All right. If you're guessing that it was uh, The Magnificent Seven, it wasn't that
0: either. Oh, all right. Well, that was my contextual guess. All right, what'd you listen to, John? Well,
1: starting out this hike, you know, going down just below the rim, this is really weird, alien looking landscape. Oh, I you see. know, it's incredible that this stuff exists on the same Earth as where I live in Los Angeles or any other place. It's truly bizarre. So I started out actually as a nod to our show by listening to the score to Planet of the Apes. And boy, that worked great. It really made me feel like I am in some otherworldly landscape.
0: I mean, that's almost exactly the landscape from the movie. Wasn't it shot uh, in the desert a few hours drive from L.A.?
1: Yeah, something like that. That sounds right. It definitely heightened my sense of this crazy desert rocks balancing every which way and Mm -hmm. strata of sediment looking stuff. You know, it's so evocatively captured in that score that was really cool to listen to as I was tramping down through it. But then as I got closer to the actual panoramic views, I wanted something a little bit more uplifting. So I switched over to listening to Appalachian Spring by Aaron Copeland. Mm -hmm. Because I felt like what could be better than all American grandeur? I feel like that is what Copeland is good for. That is what that piece of music is good for, for sure. And uh, yeah, it was a real thrill to listen to that music as I was gazing out on the most gaze-worthy thing I'd ever seen.
0: So you had Appalachian Spring queued up for looking at the Grand Canyon because you just instinctively thought these would probably go together.
1: I don't know about queued up, but yeah, I decided to switch to that as I was hiking.
0: Yeah, that relates to stuff I wanted to talk about on today's show. I guess it does for you, too, because that's why you just talked about it. Yeah,
1: that's why I brought it up, because I wanted to talk about how the sound of Copeland relates to the American West and its landscapes and how those things show up in this movie and its score.
0: Yeah, well, I was specifically going to talk about, maybe I'll say it right now. Go ahead. How Appalachian Spring, one of Copeland's most famous pieces, it's a ballet about like young farmers getting married in Pennsylvania. It is not about the West. It's not a Western. And there are parts of it that are pretty much impossible to listen to today and not think, well, this is cowboys. This is clearly cowboys. Hmm. So originally, that's supposed to be a square dance. Like, those rhythms are supposed to be, you know, turn your partner round and round. It's not supposed to be cowboys. And yet, it's just unshakeable sure Obviously, Aaron Copeland was interested in The Sound of Cowboys because he did write Rodeo and Billy the Kid, and that connection is not arbitrary, but I think some of that association of Appalachian Spring with the Grand Canyon, which doesn't really geographically make sense in Aaron Copeland's head, is via Elmer Bernstein, comes through Elmer Bernstein in this score. I think that is a post-Magnificent Seven way of listening to Appalachian Spring, because I think that Appalachian Spring is a significant source of inspiration for the sounds in this movie. I mean this isn't exactly the same as that square dance, but you know, listen to a passage like this. Or more pointedly, you know, the intro that we've already heard at the beginning of the episode, the the music in Magnificent 7 that that recurs that goes da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. Every time I heard that, I thought of the passage in Appalachian Spring that also starts with the repeated note like that. I think that these sounds got in his head and he put them to this slightly different use that has really stuck around and changed how the rest of us hear that.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, that, that geographical confusion didn't even occur to me as I was saying the names of these geographical places, the Grand Canyon and Appalachian Spring. Yeah, totally different mountain ranges we're talking about here. Yeah. But I absolutely agree, yeah. You know, hearing that kind of cowboy dance stuff as I was looking out on the Grand Canyon and hearing these, you know, grand sweeping shaker melodies. (laughs)
0: Right, (laughs) it's not cowboys dancing and there's no shakers in the Grand Canyon. Yeah. None of this really goes together.
1: Except for on the end of Rattlesnakes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. I'm imagining we'll edit in a, a rim shot there, right? That's what that silence was.
0: We'll either edit something in or edit something out one way or another.
1: Yeah, so it's totally the wrong part of the country.
0: (laughs) Well, it's not like Aaron Copland's music is the actual authentic music of anywhere either. I mean, he was a classical composer doing his own take on all of this stuff. This is very much a constructed tradition, as they would say.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. And then I think that the association of that tradition with the American West is also a thing that was constructed. Yeah, you're right in this movie. and then in things that came after this movie that I think we should talk about, too. But uh, let me just ask you now, what do you you think of this movie?
0: What do I think of this movie? You know, I have lots of thoughts about this music, and then I have other thoughts about this movie, and then I have thoughts about how the music fits with the movie, and they aren't all of a piece.
1: I have all of those thoughts, too. Yeah. Should we say them both at the same time?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if people will understand if we say it at the same time. All
1: right, here's my thesis statement. How about that? That sounds good. What I want to say about this is that this music that Elmer Bernstein wrote for this movie is definitely the greatest example of this kind of music being written for film. The the main theme, its melody and its rhythmic texture and its orchestral force, all of that is rightfully iconic and deeply entrenched in the American psyche and in the pop culture psyche of the world at large, as they should be, because they are truly surpassingly great. This music is truly surpassingly great music. I don't know if it is my favorite score, because I think that the music is so much better than the movie (laughs) that it was a little uncomfortable for me. That's what I think. What do you think?
0: A little uncomfortable, like you were embarrassed for the movie kind of thing? Just
1: that it didn't meld. You know, we always talk about the music melding with the movie. I was aware of it not melding. And I absolutely thought it was the movie's fault because how can you have anything to say against this music?
0: Yeah, well, I basically see it the same way, except, you know, the music always comes after the movie. The music is ostensibly a response to the movie or an attempt to bolster the movie. Mm -hmm. And here I felt like... You know, I saw some interview with Elm Bernstein saying that when he got this job in 1960, he was excited to do a Western because he had built up a bunch of ideas about how to do a Western. He had sort of a feeling for how he would want to do a Western when the opportunity came. And that kind of is how this feels like he was just bursting with stuff, with material, Mm -hmm. with feeling for it. And it's not necessarily a response to this particular picture yeah that's how i felt about that so you could say that that's a count against the score for being insensitive on the other hand maybe the movie's not so great (laughs) maybe having some just great music in its own right layered over it was its best bet so uh that's what i thought we could talk about
1: yeah that's that sounds like how i thought about it too You know, this is the second time we're talking about Elmer Bernstein. We talked about Mm -hmm. him before for his score for To Kill a Mockingbird. And in that episode, we cited that score and then a bunch of other scores that he wrote later in his career as evidence of him being extremely sensitive to the storytelling demands and to the point of view that the movie requires of its music. And yeah, I sort of feel like in this case, he decided that what this movie required was this overarching sense of grandiosity and the heroicism of the cowboy. And that, yeah, he was content to have it overarch the movie because that's what he thought uh, the movie needed. And I think that might be the right decision. And uh, we're left with some parts of the movie that I think felt a little overarched by the score.
0: Yeah, the specific relationship I saw in a different interview where Bernstein said that when he was working on The Ten Commandments, 1956. Mm -hmm. Which
1: was his first feature film score.
0: For the parting of the Red Sea, or for when the Israelites are walking across the parted Red Sea, he had written some slow processional music, you know, solemn procession, to match the pace at which the (laughs) people on screen were processing across the screen. And Cecil B. DeMille said, no, 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 it needs to be exciting and full of vigor. It needs to be triumphant and faster than this. And he was like, how could I write something fast for this slow motion? (laughs) And then he did it. And he said, and it really worked. And he learned a really important lesson from DeMille. And that when The Magnificent Seven came around, he links these up in his interview. He says, Magnificent Seven is a very slow-moving movie, and that the music is like a jockey that gets on the movie and rides it like a horse. Oh, I like that. Which is a beautiful metaphor.
1: Yeah, I found a quote here from Bernstein. He said, there was that ambient purpose in this score, but the main purpose was to get up on the scene and push the scene. And that's why there's a tremendous use of repeated notes. Kind of gets your blood going.
0: Yeah, they're whipping the horse, they're trying to rev this thing up. Go, go, go. And here we are both saying, yeah, but I I don't know how great this movie is. (laughs) I am willing to question whether what Bernstein had in mind there actually comes off. I think that in some ways it actually points up how slow the movie is Hmm. for the music never to endorse that slowness, to always be trying to compensate for it. I feel like there's this exciting music and then there's this not exciting movie and (laughs) I'm not sure it shows that in the best light, but maybe that's the best possible light because the movie is a dud. It's hard to say. I mean, people don't see the movie as a dud. People like this movie, right? It's fairly popular, well-loved Western.
1: You know, it kind of was a dud when it came out, actually. It didn't do so well at the box office. It didn't do so well critically. There's a lot of reviews that compare it unfavorably to the movie that it was based on, Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai. Which I watched. Which, thank you for watching, Andy, because-
0: One of us had to watch it. One of us had to. I watched Seven Samurai.
1: I've seen it a long time ago, but I'm glad you saw it more recently.
0: Having watched them both in the same week- let me say, my personal opinion is Seven Samurai is about 50 times better a movie than the Magnificent Seven. But it also sort of has completely different goals. And, you know, I think the American remake tried to change its spirit and change some of its intentions, and it just mm-hmm. didn't get all the way there. It has this kind of, you know, like partially remodeled and then partially imitating the source quality to it. And it sort of ends up in a nowhere. Is it a upbeat movie? Is it a mm-hmm. serious movie? You know, Is yeah. it a character study? Is it an action movie? Is it a tragedy? You don't know what it's about.
1: Yeah, I don't know what it's about. It's interesting though, I didn't really realize. So Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai was made in 1954, and it was widely distributed in the US only in 1956. It was from that point that it was decided for it to be remade. And there were various different incarnations of the production before it actually wound up in the hands of John Sturgis. But I didn't realize that Kurosawa was actually himself a fan of Western movies and was in particular a big fan of John Ford, the famous Western director. Mm -hmm. Kurosawa said that he thought John Ford was the greatest living director. And he absolutely was inspired by American Western films in making Seven Samurai in the first place.
0: Did you see that when it was first released in the U.S., Seven Samurai, when it was released in the U.S., did you see what title it was released under?
1: Yes, I did. It was called The Magnificent Seven.
0: Yeah. So that's not even an original title to this movie.
1: Okay. So anyway, I was saying that, yeah, the critics didn't kind of know what to make of it. They sort of said the same things we were saying is that, you know, it doesn't really know what it wants to do, whether it wants to be a big action shoot up, whether it wants to be a sincere drama, and it's a little bit short of both targets. I think
0: we can probably sum up the differences and the way that those differences leave the remake in a weird zone. So the ending of the movie is, you know, the plot is all about defending this farming village and the Magnificent Seven, cowboys or samurai, successfully defend the village. But, you know, a bunch of them die.
1: Right. Yeah. Spoiler, by the way.
0: Spoiler. Yeah. As we tell you, it's always full of spoilers.
1: It's also a 60 year old movie. So it
0: it doesn't really spoil the effect of the movie for you to know that it ends with.
1: No, it doesn't because their deaths are kind of arbitrary and don't. Okay. anyway, go on.
0: So in Seven Samurai, the lead samurai who's one of the survivors says, you know, the farmers they won, but right. we lost. This is their victory not ours and you oh, see right. the graves of the samurai who died mm-hmm. and that's the ending. And you hear this music which is the main samurai theme in the movie in the score by Fumio Hayasaka. It has a heroism but it's like a grim, you know, a somber heroism. Hmm. that's the theme that's been throughout the movie and you hear it at the end because he says we always lose and it's a bittersweet ending you know fully committed to in the American movie they retain the line because they thought it was so great in the Japanese movie and Yul Brenner says no the farmers won but we right. lose we always lose only the farmers
2: won we lost. We always
0: lose. And then the music goes, basically right off into the sunset, boys! Yeehaw! Da 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 da! And you, as the viewer, are left going, "So was that sad? Was that how do What? What's the feeling here? Who knows? It was a western?
1: Yeah." <laughs> That's a good juxtaposition there. But I I wanted to go back to you talking about that Bernstein had this idea, this technique he wanted to employ that he learned from the Ten Commandments to play fast, exciting music when the action is actually going slowly. And I think this is pretty instructive. And I wonder if there's a way that we can do this on a podcast, on essentially a radio show here, because I want to try to convey the difference of what's on the screen, what picture you're actually looking at, and do a sort of A-B comparison with and without music here. Okay, so here, I'm going to watch the movie, and I'm going to mute the sound, and I'm going to try to give a little play-by-play of what we're looking at here, okay? And maybe Andy, you can find some uh, clip clops, ambient noise of clip clops, just to imagine <laughs> the scene without uh, without any music playing. Okay, so let's look at after uh, horse buckholds Finally, they let him into their gang because he caught a bunch of fish. I guess proves that he's good enough.
0: I think it's like he's been keeping up with them the whole time, and he's still got a great attitude. And they're kind of right. like, all right, fine.
1: Yeah. So then your Brenner like waves him along. All right, buddy, you're in the gang now. Now the full seven, the full magnificence of all of the seven magnificent people are riding. Here they are riding. And it's a shot of uh, here come the horses. They're fording a little stream. Uh, There's some trees. They're walking very, very slowly on their horses. One horse goes by, another, a third. Here's Steve McQueen. Here's James Coburn. They're riding on their horses. is a pretty close shot of James Coburn. Um, Now uh, the camera turns and sees the back of James Coburn's horse, and here comes Horst Buckholz on his horse. It's, again, a close to medium shot just through some trees. This isn't even a panoramic shot. They're in a little grove of trees around a river. Okay. So that's how that looks. And uh, maybe we'll do some sound design to to convey the before. Before there was music on this scene, it was just some horses. Horses
0: walking across the river.
1: Walking. Walking as slowly as horses can walk.
0: They're not at a trot.
1: They're not even a canter. Is a canter faster than a trot? No, a trot's slower. All right. Well, they're not even at that. Yeah, walking. All right. That's what it is. But this is what it sounds like. This music is so rousing and great and so full of energy and wonder, everything, that it can't help but spill over and really make you believe that you're watching something really, really magnificent and grand, even when you're plainly not. But even so, even with the spillover effect that I couldn't help but feel, I felt like Okay, this is, yeah, he's doing something that he had decided he was going to do ahead of time. And again, we should say, which is probably the right thing to do for this movie, what this movie needed.
0: I had a hard time getting through this movie when I had to watch it for this. Like my attention kept slipping. Hmm. I thought, boy, this is how I used to feel as a kid when I would watch movies I didn't really understand. And I I was like, what's going on again? (laughs) And then I finally did. I finally got through it attentively. I totally followed what happened. Yeah, It's
1: not complicated.
0: <laughs> it's not very complicated, no. But uh, as I thought about what the music was doing here, I thought this kind of contributes to that feeling I would have a lot. As a kid, I would watch movies in this sort of inattentive way where I was just trying to pick up the vibe. I wasn't paying close attention to the words the characters are saying to each other. I was just feeling the feeling of it, the music of it in a larger sense, the nonverbal storytelling. And I would sometimes have a hard time latching onto a movie where those things didn't seem to match up. Hmm. I feel like there's a spirit to this movie and energy to it that is inattentive to its story and that puts me in a place that I have good positive fond memories of being in that place kind of a cozy like hey it's an old movie let's sit back on the couch and enjoy this and that enjoyment is fuzzy a little bit foggy <laughs> I'm totally fine with that I, I don't think that that's necessarily a count against a movie but definitely when we kind of take this analytical perspective that we end up doing on this show it starts to feel like what even is this an example I noticed in this movie in the uh the sort of the second scene the first scene is you see the bandits terrorizing this village and then the village sends some farmers to find guns. They end up hiring gunmen. So the second scene, they arrive in this American town and Brenner and Steve McQueen reveal themselves. But the scene is about, it's this weird scenario they've concocted. It's not in the Japanese version where Uh, People in this town don't want to bury this uh, Native American corpse in the town cemetery because that's just for white folk. This town's racist and all of these sort of... Well,
1: some of them are racist. The Undertaker wants to make it clear that he's not racist, but he doesn't want any trouble from the racists.
0: Right. Yeah, it's such a shoehorned attempt to get kind of a social conscience issue into the movie to give it some American... I don't know. It seemed sort of forced.
1: Yeah, I think it gives, it gives Steve McQueen and Yul Brenner a chance to do what I think is now called virtue signaling. <laughs> yeah. By being the ones to volunteer to drive the rig up to the cemetery and in so doing maybe get shot at by the racists who don't want the corpse to be buried there. The
0: characters aren't virtue signaling. I'm just saying. Yeah,
1: the movie is. Sure.
0: This sequence doesn't make a lot of sense. It hasn't really been scripted out properly. They have to put in this traveling salesman character who's like, well, I don't understand why you can't just do this. I'm paying for this corpse I saw in the middle of the street to get buried.
1: I'm not looking for any praise. I'm a traveling salesman, ladies' corsets. I'm walking down the street and a man drops dead right in front of me. For two hours, people kept stepping over and over. The around. main thing
0: I want to say that is, at the end of this sequence, the really traveling salesman out. guy, the corset salesman, is like, "Wow, that was really something." Okay, I gotta go. <laughs> Boy, that was really something.
1: You know, I won't forget that if I live to be a hundred. Henry, the stage is leaving. All
0: right, all right. Wait and he gets in about. his carriage and rides he away of out of the movie we're done with him he served his single use function and he is dismissed and as his carriage is riding away yeah there is some of the most triumphant exciting music in the movie Sounds like the theme from a whole other movie. Well, you really just hear it this right, one time. It
1: sounds like the theme from this movie, but like a sound-alike version of it. It's the same chords and a, roughly the same sort of orchestral energy to it, but it's a different melody.
0: Right, but it is accompanying the shot. Yeah, You can't really see Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen in this shot. It is a shot of the corset salesman's <laughs> carriage, and the music is really saying, yeehaw.
1: Yeah, wee, look what we did.
0: This is awesome. As a kid and now as an adult, I have a way of watching that and feeling like, yeah, it's a western, there is motion on the screen, and this music is thrilling, and this all fits together, and that's great, but it just does not withstand actual engagement with the story meanings of anything that you yeah. know, that impression that it's satisfying falls apart. This one is so transparently inappropriate, and yet it works in that inattentive way, and I feel like this movie, at least after Elmer Bernstein got at it, just insists on being watched that way, like you can't really think about who these characters are in relation to each other too deeply. I mean, you can, if you want to, if you want to write a thesis about American masculinity as portrayed in the Magnificent Seven, I'm sure you can pull it off. Oh, well, there's a
1: lot more to say about American masculinity that I want to get to. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, if
0: you're going to write a thesis about this movie, that's the one to write.
1: Yeah, but I'm not, this is going to be it. Great. Good choice. Anyway, uh, You know, I was reading that there were sequels to this movie that were made that were even less distinguished filmmaking than this is that are pretty well forgotten but a lot of the music was sort of recycled from this score for those further movies that had totally different actors totally different directors and by all accounts are totally forgettable but i read that that specific cue that sort of sideways take on the melody was used again and again in these sequels Uh just as like the triumphant riding hero music
0: I assume it's because the corset salesman shows up in those sequels and <laughs> does heroic things, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're all about that guy.
1: No, I mean, obviously it's meant to be like the conclusion of this heroic episode in which we meet our heroes and witness their heroism. But my take on why it's a different melody and why it sounds just sort of only adjacent to the actual theme from this movie is that he was holding the theme back until they teamed up Officially, you know, this is when Yule Brenner's character Chris and Steve McQueen's character uh, Vin meet each other for the first time and sort of recognize, hey, we're both good guys here (laughs) in the West. And this is before they meet the Mexican villagers and before they start teaming up to go help them. So I think Bernstein was holding the theme back until that starts to happen. In fact, I think the first time we hear the melody after the main title is when Steve McQueen joins up and he says, How many are you? How many guys? Brenner holds up one finger, Steve McQueen holds up two fingers, meaning now you've got me. Now that the seven are starting to form, we hear the actual Magnificent Seven melody, and it's a little bit softer, it's a little bit subtler than it winds up being. Yeah, so anyway, I think that's why it's a different melody at the end of that initial episode. But yeah, you're definitely right that it sticks out. It's claiming, I think, more than the movie itself is claiming. But it really sounds like something. Like, this is really a great thing we just saw. And it's probably, you know, more than it really was.
0: Yeah. So the metaphor of the jockey on the horse, like the problem with that uh-huh. metaphor is that the horse had already done its ride. The movie is made. So the jockey can get on top of the horse and mime like it's going really fast. <laughs> But he can't actually make the horse go any faster. And that's how a lot of these things actually play. But you understand that I'm saying it doesn't, at least if you're watching it a way that really is available to me and that I think Elmer Bernstein is kind of counting on, it doesn't jump out. It doesn't stick out until you sort of focus your lenses and try and pick apart what you're seeing. You can really just roll with it. It's just that that rolling with it entails being oblivious, sort of being indifferent to the detail, and that is a way of watching movies. It can be a very comfortable way of watching movies.
1: Yeah, you know, I have to give it credit, you're right, because it says that this is a grand thing to be viewed from this grand distance. It says it so convincingly that you have to kind of roll with it. And it actually put me in mind of some of the stuff that we were saying about Ben-Hur. We were saying that, you know, the music for that seems to be coming at it from the certain remove. And it is painting in these incredibly broad strokes that apply to the entire endeavor and doesn't get down into the nooks and crannies. And I feel like, you know, that movie was the previous year. That kind of epic scale way of movie making was in vogue. And I think really influenced what Bernstein did here. I think he was taking some cues from that style of giving you a broad sense of how great a show you're watching without getting into the kind of sensitivities that he himself was such a great pioneer for just two years later in To Kill a Mockingbird.
0: Yeah. I mean, we don't even need to go to Ben-Hur. We already mentioned the Ten Commandments, which is a classic one of those that sure. Bernstein himself was a pivotal point in his career. And yeah, I think that Cecil P. DeMille's advice, yeah, just make it sound the way you want the audience to feel and they'll fall for it. Mm -hmm. my words, not his, but that's essentially what the advice is. really does work in that kind of epic level storytelling that, you know, it is a spectacle and that sort of obliviousness to detail is part of the effect that's wanted. The problem here...
1: Is that it's not that epic looking. It's
0: not that kind of a movie. Right. Seven Samurai is epic because it's three and a half hours long. But (laughs) Scene for Scene is really about character interactions and, you know, the dynamics between the samurai and the farmers. And this movie hasn't really solved those problems. But that is its intention. I mean, the title is still telling you this is going to be about seven characters. In theory, you're tracking seven different people. In practice, seven is too many. You're really just tracking Yul Brenner, Steve McQueen, and Horst Buchholz. Mm-hmm. Now, Horst Buchholz's character technically does get some music of his own, but it really doesn't come to the fore. It's not prominent. Yeah. It's not really something you're aware of. For me, it never really gelled with the character into a single impression, so I just would hear guitars that didn't know who they were for. Uh-huh. In Seven Samurai, the Toshiro Mufuna character, for example, he's this wild man, and he gets this very strongly defined music that you recognize every time you hear it. <laughs> That matters so much to the effect of the whole movie because you actually notice that the different characters are different people mm. it's, it's like obvious omission that the American version the music doesn't characterize the characters.
1: So sort of the most important alternate melodic material that is in this score is the theme for the bad guy for Eli Wallach's character Calvera, the leader of the Mexican bandits. Right.
0: pretty good
1: it's pretty good we hear it right at the top of the movie as soon as the main titles are over because that's the first thing we see is these bandits riding into the village and then i feel like this music gets to be sort of the body of most of the action music most of the gunfight music is based around this because it's about the conflict with this character
0: yeah he a bunch of different ways and he does turn it into satisfying action music but it basically is bad guy music. It's not really specifically about the character as Eli Wallach portrays him and so it's just sort of a necessity that there's an antagonistic force in the movie and there has to be this music and it serves very well as that but that's pretty different from what I was saying about uh, characterizing the characters, which are really the heart of Seven Samurai.
1: I think he wasn't really inspired to characterize the characters because the movie didn't really seem invested in it either. Like, you know, when we meet James Coburn, he's essentially in a knife throw versus gun draw duel that he wins. He's so fast at throwing a knife. And I couldn't believe that that didn't come up again. As I was watching, I kept wondering, when are we going to see that pay off? It's Chekhov's knife throw that just gets left hanging. That's his superpower. Like it would have just cost five seconds of screen time to have him, you know, uh, somebody comes up on him while he's loading his gun and he has to kill him with a knife throw instead. Would have been so great. Oh yeah, he can do that. Yeah. But it didn't have a sense of fulfilling what the characters, what their attributes were.
0: I mean, there's a basic problem in adapting it, which is that samurai are, you know, professional warriors with a code and they're a distinct class of person and these guys are just, you know, it's called the Magnificent Seven in part because, like, the seven what's, they're just uh, <laughs> seven murderous drifters. It's not really. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, they're guns for hire, they're cowboys. I guess. Yeah, I
0: mean, are they always guns for hire? Or are they just anything's for hire? And on this occasion, they will be guns. It's not really clear what they are.
1: I think it's, no, they're guns for hire. They're mercenaries. You know, Charles Bronson talks about how he got paid such and so amount of dollars to fight in this war and that war.
0: Okay, but there's just something about a samurai. You know, it's like a, a knight on sure. horseback. Like you have dedicated your life to a cause. You're not just looking for work. And, you know, if it happens to involve shooting people, you'll do it. It makes a big difference to the movie that in that scene you mentioned where we're meeting James Coburn, he is basically killing his co-worker pretty much just because the guy's like, you know, Duel Me Dude.
1: Dares him to do it. Yeah. Dares him
0: to. The same exact thing happens in Seven Samurai, but it's like two samurai who are obsessively devoting their lives to the skill of the sword. It just the context is different.
1: Yeah, you're right to invoke the code of the samurai and to wonder about its counterpart in this movie, because in this movie, I kind of wasn't really sure why (laughs) all these guys are taking this job. You know, they make a big deal of how little they're getting paid, only $20 for weeks and weeks of work down in this Mexican village. And there's this kind of rough sense of, well, it's the noble thing to do.
0: Yeah, because of their hearts and souls.
1: Right. The audience gets the sense that it's the noble thing to do because of the music that's saying, how noble this whole enterprise is. But I wasn't really convinced on a character by character basis about why they just kind of show up and say, yeah, well, I guess I'm in.
0: I'm not even sure the music is telling you that this is a noble endeavor. I think the main thing the music is telling you and it tells it to you wonderfully. Let's like praise this music some more. But the main thing the music is telling you is that these are the dudes. Mm -hmm. These are heroes. And being a cowboy is it. (laughs) This is the way to be. Yeah. It's very satisfying.
1: Oh, well, yeah, that's how I started. And I definitely want to get back to articulating more about why the music is itself so great. But I think it's a fair point that there's not, yeah, that motivation underlying the actions of the characters in this movie. You know, I think the closest that we get to sort of understanding their code, as it were, or their motivations, is this scene where they talk about the life that they lead, about we don't have any attachments, we don't have any family. But then they say, also, we don't have to answer to anybody. They count to zero for all yeah. of the things that they don't
2: have. Places you're tied down to, none. People with a hold on you, none. None. Men you step aside for? None. Insult swallowed?
1: None. And that's kind of a nice bit of dialogue. And I think tellingly, there's no music for it. I was really missing something there to tie in this heroic bravado of the theme you know, it would have been nice to have some smaller statement of that theme to really tell me, yeah, these are the heroes and this is how they think. But it didn't tie that together for me there.
0: I think there is in this screenplay kind of a semi-formed idea of what it's saying about these characters and why they did this. They each have their reasons and they each have beneath the amazing masculine hero exteriors. They each have feelings that drive them. And you know, that is sort of a common theme from the samurai version, but the music doesn't really get in there and do much with that. Charles Bronson's character turns out to be half Mexican and these Mexican boys sort of, they glom onto him.
2: We had a knitting and we drew straws and we got two.
0: You got me what do you mean you got me
2: if you get killed we take the life and avenge you and we see to it that there's always fresh flowers in your (laughs) grave it's a mighty big comfort
0: and he resists it but then you know he feels a kinship with them and he ends up responding to it and he sort of reveals his sense of connection to these boys and to mexico and Mm -hmm. the music that accompanies this side story is just the same kind of music that accompanies the town and basically all of the mexican music is uh some pretty mexican music ideas that bernstein had
1: yeah that's a good point that is something i noted that he sets up this music for the mexican children and for their relationship with charles bronson and it is yeah a little bit superficially just like a mexican melody very nice one but he then asks i think a little bit more of that material than it can give especially because we hear it again at the very end of the picture when we're looking at charles bronson's grave and these kids attending to his grave as they promised him they would. And we hear that same music again, and boy, it does not have gravitas.
0: All of the Mexican music, which is pretty, which is engaging, but it is really just treated as, you know, local color music that he lays in when it's time. Also. Second shout out to Aaron Copeland And we we'll do a few more before this thing is over But I thought that uh, Bernstein might I,
1: I, I think I know what you're going to say Here, I'm going to write down what I think you're going to say <laughs> I'm writing it down uh, Now you, you go ahead and say it and then I'll tell you if, if it was what I thought In
0: addition to writing American music That wasn't actually cowboy music And some actual cowboy music
1: uh-huh, uh-huh,
0: uh-huh. Aaron Copeland wrote a piece about his trip to Mexico Called El Salon Mexico
1: I will now unveil this piece of paper <laughs> On right. which it is written El Salon Mexico
0: right. Which in turn was based on actual dance tunes that he heard in mexico city i think yeah the tune there really sounds like the one that uh, elmer has put in this movie
1: Yeah, I think that there's a pretty explicit nod to El Salon, Mexico for when the Mexican villagers are riding into the town where they meet Yul Brenner. I think Bernstein here is intentionally referencing El Salon, Mexico and that sound. And yeah, like you said earlier, it's a real accomplishment of his to tie that into what the American West sounds like.
0: Yeah, well, not just the American West, but a Western.
1: And a Western film, The yeah.
0: world of the Western. I mean, somewhat back to where we started, I think that Bernstein saying he had these ideas about how westerns should be played is real those were real ideas they weren't just Mm -hmm. borrowing from standard tropes even though yes Copeland really laid all this stuff out I think that there's a particular collecting of it that goes on in this movie that Mm -hmm. had a big impact going forward and I also think that you know for all we can say about how maybe it doesn't serve the movie or maybe it serves the movie in kind of a last-ditch effort to save a movie that wasn't working way if you just listen to the soundtrack if you just put it on on headphones and walk around imagine a movie. yeah, The movie that you imagine is fantastic. It sounds like the best Western ever. It sounds fantastic.
1: That can't be said enough, that this sounds like the best Western ever. The fact that he got to that sound, even if the movie itself is a little disappointing, I still think counts as this indelible, awesome accomplishment.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Okay, so let's break down why it's so awesome, why it sounds so good. And
0: the it that we're talking about here yes the whole score is a really good listen but it's this main theme yeah you know is just a lasting achievement i think i saw in the original 1960 review and the hollywood reporter says elmer bernstein's music is truly memorable the theme will stick yeah and it's stuck boy totally stuck You hear it the first time you're like, of course, this is a you, you know, you nailed it, man. Aaron Copeland would have been proud to write exactly this.
1: Yeah, so let's tease out the different elements of this. So we're talking first about the melody, the few simple notes that go ba ba da da, da ba and then the answering phrase. It's so incredible. It's such a miracle when there's a melody like that that you just feel like was always there. How could anybody have Thought of this from before it existed because it was always there. He just, you know, it's one of these tunes that you just wind up picking out of the air. It's almost impossible to imagine this tune not existing. <laughs> How did he do it?
0: Yeah, it's really beautifully, just a little bit outside of an authentic-sounding folk tune. It's a little bit more composed than that. It's a little bit more adventurous. It takes a couple of turns that an actual cowboy song wouldn't do. Like in a real cowboy song, I think you'd usually hear the high notes on the downbeats, and then it would come down from there. Like yip a tie, da 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 da. Whereas in this, it kind of goes, da-da, it leaps up onto the second beat, onto the offbeat. Da-da-da-da. I don't think you get that so much in real cowboy folk songs. You know, if you tried to write out lyrics, it wouldn't sound like, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to sing lyrics now, but, you know, like, uh, get along little doggies or, uh, what? you know, what are some actual cowboy songs?
1: Well, well. speaking of lyrics. No, uh, no, no, I, no, I no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm not don't worry. I'm not gonna I didn't write parody lyrics. <laughs> oh, okay. God. I just wanted to say I did find, <laughs> i love how nervous boy. I I'm gonna have to remember that. <laughs> how nervous you got about me singing lyrics to this. I do want to point out though, I think it's interesting because you're talking about these two note phrases, these two-note ascending intervals that form the skeleton of the theme, da-da, and then da-da-da-da. Those two intervals mm-hmm. I got this quote here from Bernstein where he actually reveals a little bit where those came from. He says, I had trouble trying to figure out melodically what to do. Curiously enough, I got desperate and I was thinking of the word seven. What can I get out of the word seven? Of course, if you think of the very first two notes, you'd easily say seven. And that's how that started. So yeah, the lyrics to the song are seven. There are seven. Mm -hmm. Seven. Talking about seven
0: seven. There you are. Yeah, that was cool. When I saw that, I thought, aha, aha. So that's the tune. And then there is under it.
1: Yeah, there's this incredible energy. I think I read the quote earlier, he mentioned the repeated note. And boy, it's just the best, the most fun, exciting, repeated note. In music, right? This. Oh,
0: you're talking about the intro. You're talking about the. Yeah, that stuff. these meter changes the kind of stop and start phrases
1: it's so exciting it just makes you feel like the good guys are coming and it's gonna be great and it's heroism and it's bravado and enthusiasm and american yeah Uh, boy it sounds good
0: yeah i mean talk about american masculinity i do feel like some of that is encoded here just in the rhythm of bum Sure. Yeah. Because that syncopation where you don't get the first beat in the second bar, but then it picks it up, gets you there in time anyway. That is like this winking, you know. Uh huh. It's the casual, joking around, guys slapping each other on the back kind of vibe. It's this style of manhood that these movies ultimately like that's the main thing they're trying to get at Uh like hey i don't take anything too seriously i'm very dependable but uh i've always got a wink and there's like a (laughs) wink at the top of that second bar
1: i like that i like that a lot and i think you're right that it's really remarkable that that little rhythmic figure is nearly as memorable as this incredibly memorable tune that we were just singing (laughs) Right, I thought
0: you were going to say that rhythmic figure is nearly as memorable as this movie, which I think would be correct. <laughs> well, I think if you want to, on one hand like the entire movie, The Magnificent Seven, on the other hand, dun 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 dun, <laughs> dun 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 dun, I think the other hand is going to be the heavier one.
1: You're not wrong, and the evidence for that that I was about to give the evidence for how that rhythmic figure is in itself super memorable. Is this episode of Cheers when the whole gang of Cheers is going to go and watch <laughs> The Magnificent Seven on TV? That's what the episode's about. They're excited to do it, and Carla starts that little rhythmic figure, and everybody knows what to do. Everybody joins in. And then Norm starts the melody on top. I love how that shows how, yeah, just bum, 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 bum is enough. And it's in there. It's so deep into pop culture, into everything.
0: Yeah, that's why I was struck by that quote from the contemporaneous review, because you wonder, like, does this just seem completely indelible because I've been taught it over the course of my life? Or did people think that on the first hearing? But Hmm. of course you thought it on the first hearing. Someone went to the movie and left and said, uh, yeah, that's never going anywhere. <laughs> We're stuck with that for all time now. And yeah, I think I saw Elmer Bernstein saying that when he came across that, he was like, this is good. I've got something exciting here.
1: Yeah, well, he was right.
0: I also saw him saying that he had tried out some of those rhythmic ideas in a TV show from the previous year, Riverboat. uh uh-huh. 1959 TV show about a... Is,
1: is it about a riverboat?
0: Again, geographically jumping around, it's about a riverboat on the Mississippi with Darren McGavin and Burt Reynolds. <laughs> and here's the tune... It's not exactly, exactly the same rhythm. In fact, I think there it's supposed to be like a Creole New Orleans dance rhythm, but it clearly is related and you can hear it's an idea. It's a musical idea about how to get across a certain concept of heroism. Mm -hmm. What is a cool way to be? What's a way of embodying excitement? Interesting, I guess, sort of to contrast with like we had a whole episode talking about Errol Flynn and swashbuckling and all of that. This is a completely different idea of how a hero carries himself, you know, the energy of it, the rhythm of it. But it's sort of serving in that same way. Like, why are these guys so magnificent? What's magnificent about them? The rhythm is kind of the best answer the movie has.
1: (laughs) Okay, another thing I wanted to mention that this tune does is it lands on this certain chord which I think has become so emblematic. It's the go-to chord, I think, that you use when you want to make something sound cowboyish or like a Western. And I was curious about its provenance. I don't think he was the first to do it here, but I think he really clinches it as a thing to do.
0: Well, this is another way that it goes near folk songs and then does something a folk song would not do. Mm Mm-hmm chord, you're talking about the flat seven chord, right?
1: I'm talking about the flat seven chord. So we were saying how the melody is kind of built around these certain intervals and each of them lands on a different chord. So there's the first one, bum, bum, that's one chord. And then bum, that's another chord. Then we hear the first chord again. Bum, bum. And now instead of the second chord we hear, now we hear a different one. It lands on this chord. Ba-da-m, ba-da-m. And it's that chord the flat seven, which then moves to the five, that sounds so westernish. I did see where one precursor to that was called out in the reading I did, mm-hmm. which is the score. I think we actually have played this on our show before the score to The Big Country by Jerome Moras. So the big country is a big Western about the big country. And it was from two years earlier, 1958. And actually, Elmer Bernstein wanted to get to write the score for The Big Country. And he didn't get that job. And he lobbied to get The Magnificent Seven job instead. And obviously, he got that job. But I think fair to say that he was absolutely influenced by what Moras did in The Big Country. And the melody, which is definitely not as good a melody. It doesn't have the staying power. It doesn't have that particular zhuzh <laughs> that the Bernstein Magnificent Seven melody does. But it does land on that score. think i've seen it referred to as the cowboy cadence those particular chords in a row have this feel to them
0: again i can link it if you want to psychologize it i can link that up to this idea of um swagger yeah swagger yeah 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 kind of roguish charm Uh the manly charm of like stepping a little out of line just enough and there's something a little out of line about that card. Uh-huh. Not in a confrontational way, but a kind of, you didn't think I was going to sidestep over here, did you? Yeah. I can do this too. You never know with me. There's a sense of it saying, things are just so, you know how they are. And every now and then things aren't. You know, there's another way things are too. Uh-huh. uh-huh.
2: Uh-huh.
0: Yeah. And that just adds space to it. It adds a feeling of depth. You know, a folk song can seem reassuring because it's so traditional. It just goes around the traditional circle of three or four chords, and then for there to be this other chord, it just opens out the emotional space. It mm-hmm. says, "Yeah, other things happen in this world. You can spend a lot of time in this world."
1: So I remember back in the *Tickle and Mockingbird* episode, you started to mention Aaron Copeland's actual film score to a movie called the red pony and you said ah let's save that for this episode well here we are in this episode right
0: so did you listen to this piece walk to the bunkhouse from the red pony i think i played a little bit of it on the mockingbird episode but right. this piece just like its influence on american culture should not be underestimated i think it only lasts about a minute and a half in the movie and who's ever even really seen the red pony but nonetheless
1: what years this movie is like 49 i
2: think
0: This cue is about kind of the swagger of this Robert Mitchum character who's like a hand on the farm, and the kid idolizes him and walks with him to the bunkhouse where he lives, and this is just kind of a kid and his amazing Western hero idol.
2: Who's she? She's my cousin, too.
0: And it's got all of the elements... With less force, but it's got a lot in common with the Magnificent well, Seven. It's got so. the long-lined melody on top. It's got this kind of start and stop, winking accompaniment. I'm not sure it has the flat seven. I think it has a flat three, which is, you know, without getting into too much theory, can have some of the same effect of stepping a little bit out of the regular circle of things. Yeah. You
2: know. <laughs>
0: You know, the rest of the Red Pony sounds pretty different, but I think that uh, Elmer Bernstein and maybe Jerome Ross and other people sort of sawed through the keyhole of this one little piece of music. Like, Uh we can do a whole tradition out of this.
1: I think what they saw when they peeked through that keyhole was the rest of Copland's, you know, orchestral and ballet writing. And this was a way to sort of cast that into film music that I think you're totally right to credit to Elmer Bernstein here as the shaping of the sound of a Western movie. I think we probably played the main title a whole bunch of times. But here, let's pick this little bit of action music here, which you can absolutely hear echoes of all that Copland stuff we were referring to. You know, like you said before, this sounds like the greatest Western action scene. There's so much energy and excitement in this music and it's so skillfully done. Sure, it's terrific. But, you know, what is happening on screen during that cue? Uh, yeah, well,
0: the listener who hasn't seen the movie recently was probably imagining something while they were listening to that. They were probably imagining action on horseback, fist fight, something like that.
1: Sure, or, you know, in the throes of a gunfight, people ducking behind buildings and really running for their lives. Yeah, maybe. Something great. Maybe. Tell us what it is, John. <laughs> So it's this scene where the horse Buckhold's character is playing around on his horse in a river and he hears something and he thinks maybe somebody's coming to get him. He chases down this person that's been spying on him and it turns out to be a girl. In fact, the girl who winds up being his love interest in the movie and it was a false alarm you know, remember last episode, we said that Goldsmith was right not to write action music for that scene in the Orchard because if he had, if he had said, this is really exciting and important, he would have been lying to the audience. I kind of (laughs) thought of that. Like, isn't Elmer lying to the audience here about how important this is? I mean,
0: it's almost beyond that because the audience can see immediately that it's not one of the bad guys. You can see her running away. There's no moment in the sequence when you don't know that he's not in danger. The music is just ballet. It's just exciting music, and it's worth whatever it's worth to you. Also, in the middle of the queue, it cuts to the next scene. You see some people digging a ditch to protect the town. There's no acknowledgement of that cut. He's got this music he wants to play. It's good music, dammit. We're going to play it even as the scene changes.
1: Yeah, well, it's great music, so... So why is it that this movie lives on in memory as such a giant? I was a little bit surprised to go back and watch it and, you know, having these thoughts about, golly, this movie maybe isn't all it's cracked up to be felt sacrilegious even to me as I was thinking it. But I feel like this movie has a resonance and a place in culture that has been, as we said earlier, constructed for it in other ways and from other directions.
0: Like what? What are you thinking of?
1: Well, as you said, this music was immediately super successful, was recognized as such, and was put to a lot of other uses right away. Actually, our old friend John Barry, before he started writing the scores for the James Bond movies, he had a little jazz combo. The John Barry 7, again, 7, I don't know if that's a coincidence. It's definitely a coincidence. The John Barry 7 put out like a surf rock version of this tune, which is pretty cool. Okay. But most importantly, the thing that I thought we really do have to talk about is the way that the idea of this American machismo that lives in this score, I think it has really come down to us through the Marlboro Man. Uh So when I read this, I was shocked to learn that Marlboro cigarettes, when they were first introduced in the 20s, were marketed as cigarettes for women. And they were advertised as being, you know, soft and filtered Uh. And they underwent like a paradigm shift in their advertising ideas that they wanted to make it macho and manly. And, you know, they came up with the Marlboro Man. So when I say Marlboro Man, obviously, who are you thinking of? You're thinking of Cowboy, right? The Marlboro Man?
0: Yeah, not a woman. No, not a woman. definitely not picturing a woman. I'm thinking of some sort of, (laughs) yeah, yeah, I'm thinking of a magazine ad with a tight close up of a cowboy smoking a cigarette.
1: So, in the late 50s, they were trying out different versions of Marlboro men. And one of them was a cowboy, but others of them were, you know, other manly men, a construction worker, people from different walks of life. It wasn't until after this movie came out that somebody in Philip Morris' marketing division decided to put the music for The Magnificent Seven up against the ones about the cowboy that it really clicked.
2: For the high country, a new snow and good hunting up there, up in Marlborough country.
1: And the music for the Magnificent Seven wound up being heavily associated with the Marlborough men and Marlborough country for like the dozen or so years between when this movie came out and when cigarette ads were banned from television. You heard this music on TV all the time about, you know, the rugged American machismo of the cowboy smoking cigarettes. The overwhelming, bounding energy... Yeah, bounding. ...of riding the range and being free, and that's what's in this music, and I think that melded with the Marlboro man riding his horse over Marlboro country. I think it melded incredibly well. And those were very effective advertisements. And I'm tempted to even say that it was a better melding than even the music was put to in this movie.
0: Yeah, because it's pure iconography.
1: Exactly. Because this music is asking to be pure iconography. Yeah, that's
0: what it's asserting. That is what it is trying to make the movie into.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's why, you know, an advertisement is in some ways a more perfect home for this music. Which I feel a little guilty saying because, uh, you know, cigarettes are bad for you kids.
0: Well, it's okay. The kids know that.
1: (laughs) They do now because those commercials aren't on TV
0: anymore. That's right. You know, what you're saying, actually, I connect now to when we played the riverboat theme, that that had been a TV theme. In a sense, this movie, he's tried to score it like it's a TV show. You know, the way a TV opening has to establish what world you're in and why it's great. Yeah. How it's going to feel and what the point of it all is. You know, at the end of a good TV theme, you have been plopped down into that TV show. And now some of the pressure is off the writers of that individual episode to sell Uh everything. That's what the TV theme does. And that's sort of what Elmer has done here. Yeah, that's
1: a very good comparison. I like that very much. I think that's absolutely what he's done here. He has absolutely sold the setting, the overall ethos, the overall landscape of where we're going to be. And he sold it so well that it has transcended this specific movie, you know.
0: Right. This episode of the ongoing show Westerns.
1: Yeah, that's right. This episode isn't maybe the best episode of Westerns. You know, they, they kind of jumped the shark in season three, maybe. But boy, the theme of Westerns.
0: Yeah.
1: Elmer Bernstein wrote it. Here it is. And it is just one of the best themes that there is or could be, and he wrote it so well that, yeah, (laughs) we have to invent a higher order thing that it is the theme of instead of just this movie.
0: Right. It's a piece of music. It's a great piece of music. Go listen to it. I'm very happy to say that it is a successful piece of music away from the movie.
1: Yeah, it is. Have you ever heard it in a concert hall? It's thrilling. My wife, Becky, is a professional violinist. She's played in orchestras all her life. She's played this music a bunch of times, and I think she's told me that it's one of her very favorite things to play. It's just so exciting and rousing and wonderful you know if you ever have a chance to hear it live man go run
0: when we did the interview with Emily Bernstein didn't she say that it was her favorite thing of her father's to hear played
1: yeah she definitely called out what I was just saying about how great it is in the concert hall yeah Well, I'm glad you mentioned Emily, because if you haven't heard it, you might want to go back and listen to our interview with Emily Bernstein, Elmer's daughter, that we did at the end of our To Kill a Mockingbird episode, because she talks about her father's process and about her experience as an orchestrator for him. You know, you can get a little bit of a background about how this guy worked. I actually checked in with Emily this time. Oh, really? Because I had a couple of questions I wanted to ask her. One was, as we talked about, Elmer Bernstein's career was long and varied. And after he had this period of Westerns, he had a period in which he did a lot of comedies. And there's this one interesting intersection that I wanted to ask about, which is that Elmer Bernstein was asked to score a movie which is essentially a parody of this movie, of The Magnificent Seven. And that was Three Amigos. So Elmer Bernstein had this long working relationship with the director, John Landis. He did Animal House and then a bunch of other uh, these 80s comedies. So when John Landis asked him to do a score for a movie that was, you know, essentially a parody of his greatest hit. I was curious how he approached that. And here, let's listen to a little bit of the Three Amigos' music. It takes a different tack. It's not itself really a parody of Magnificent Seven, but, you know, it's definitely, you know, sort of on-the-nose Western music after the model that he himself had laid out 20-plus years earlier. And Emily was kind enough to relate to me that, no, he didn't grumble about it at all, that he was totally game to do it. He trusted John. He had a great relationship with him. Emily said that he might not have been quite so eager to take on a similar job if it wasn't for a director that he really enjoyed working with. But as it was, you know, it just fits into his overall outlook that he was game to try everything and he thought that these comedies were really funny and he thought that it was a valid thing to do. And so he, you know, threw himself into it just as he did with everything. I thought that was really interesting that, you know, not often you get to hear somebody sort of... (laughs) score a parody of themselves.
0: Well, but I'm not sure that his music was ever the object of the parody, in fact. No, it's not. In all of his comedies, you know, in in Airplane or whatever else we talked about on that episode where we talked about the comedies a little bit, the music is essentially sounds like music from a serious movie. And that is because, you know, that's satisfying to an audience. They have such fond associations with that stuff. I don't think there's any sense in which mocking the movie mocks the music, if anything, the opposite.
1: No, you're right. I still thought it was interesting that he got that assignment. Mm -hmm. I actually asked Emily about one other thing, which is, I happen to know, and I really love this piece of classical concert music that Elmer Bernstein wrote much later in his life. In 1999, he wrote this guitar concerto, and I couldn't help but hear some similarities in some of the guitar strumming stuff from this score, so I asked Emily if there was a connection there, and she said, no, there wasn't. Uh, That that kind of stuff was really just kind of in him, Uh, and here I'm just going to read a little bit of what she wrote. She said, I think some of those Western themes, which were really reminiscent of mariachi guitars, were something that became a part of him, so they reappeared from time to time in his writing. He and my mom spent a lot of time in Mexico before we were born, and they loved the mariachi bands. So I think those guitars became a romantic thing for him later in life. I just thought that was so lovely, and, you know, it harkens back to how you were saying that he had all these influences, he had all of these... Things that he assimilated into what he had to say, you know, from the Copeland to his own time in Mexico.
0: He definitely had a personal feeling for it. And for all that we're saying that the score is not so specific to the movie, it is very specific in what it expresses. It has a very particular personal vision to it and a that, sincerity
1: intrinsically to it
0: yeah and i think that's something that characterizes a lot of elmer bernstein's work is this yeah definitely direct emotional expression and yeah that really comes through you can tell that he felt it
1: yeah you can tell that it came from something that he himself loved and had it had an impact on him in his real life
0: mm-hmm All right, John, let's do the very important thing that we do at the end of each episode, which for those who are just joining us now for some reason is that we have been um, reordering these things to reflect our own judgments about what order they should have been on because the AFI ordering seems odd to us. Yeah. So John, in your cumulative reordering, where do you think you might put this?
1: Maybe it's time for me to just give a little quick recap what I've got. I'll give my top Mm -hmm. 10 or so. They go E.T. the Extraterrestrial, Vertigo, To Kill a Mockingbird, Chinatown, A Streetcar Named Desire. Then On the Waterfront, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Planet of the Apes, Sunset Boulevard. Okay, so that's enough. So yeah, like I said at the top, this music can't be beat, but is it my favorite score? I don't think it is, mostly because it's not a good enough movie for it to be my favorite score too. You know, like we said, it's the theme for the Western's overall TV show, but the specific episode that happens in this movie wasn't as fleshed out with music as some of the things towards the top of this list. Nonetheless, I think that this gets an incredible amount of points for- coming up with this sound for being so convincing that people reach for it, even well outside of this movie, in totally different contexts. Decades later, this is still the sound of a Western movie. That is such a great achievement. And this theme is such a great achievement that for those reasons, I am going to put this underneath The Adventures of Robin Hood and above Planet of the Apes. I think that Robin Hood you really did a good job convincing me what a great score Robin Hood was and what a great job it did amplifying the fun and the excitement of that movie. I think the combination of that music and that movie stands a little bit above this.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: As a combination. As
1: a combination. But that's where I'm going to put it. So that makes it, let's see, my number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight score overall.
0: I feel almost exactly the way, and I'm going to put it in almost exactly the same place, even okay, though our good. lists are a little bit different. Basically, I'm going to put it also just above Planet of the Apes, which okay. I felt, I think what I said at the time was that like this is great and satisfying music, and it kind of does one simple thing for its movie, mm-hmm. and that's why it went there. And I feel like this is in a similar category, and the music is... Significantly more meaningful. Like mm-hmm. again, da 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 is just like a monument in American culture. That little nugget, absolutely. So yeah, as the sort of single-minded scores go, this is right up there. And for me, that puts it right under A Streetcar Named Desire, which, you know, is a little bit less forceful and durable as individual pieces of music, but it adds up to something more magical as a movie.
1: I agree. Yeah, it doesn't have a musical monument like that in it that you can really pluck out of the movie and remember as well as this. But yeah, I think I agree that it it's just dramatically so much more sophisticated. So dramatically, much- yeah, it melds with the movie dramatically in a special way that this movie didn't really make available to Bernstein to do.
0: I mean, like I was saying, the music is a kind of waving its hand saying, you know, just ignore this movie. <laughs> just think about this. Smoke and mirrors kind of don't pay attention to the movie behind the curtain kind of thing. And when you don't pay attention to the movie behind the curtain, it's wonderful. The movie it tells you <laughs> to imagine is wonderful. And yes. the imaginary movie that it scores is as good as anything on this list. But the actual movie, <laughs> I'm going to put right there just above Planet of the Apes.
1: Great. Okay. So we're pretty close on this one because that makes it your number eight overall score as well. Mm -hmm. And now Planet of the Apes is number nine for both of us on our orderings.
0: Yep. Pretty much the same placement.
1: Okay, great. Next time we're going to talk about a score and a composer that we have referenced a couple of times already, and that is David Raxon and his score for Laura. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Cool. I think it is going to be cool. I think there's going to be cool stuff to say about this. It's a great tune. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, I am too. I haven't seen it in a long time, and... Yeah, I hadn't even really taken in that that's the next one. And when you said it, I thought, cool, I'm yeah. looking forward to that. Yeah,
1: and then, boy, after Laura, then we're off to the races. I don't know if you want to peek ahead.
0: It's the races up there. Yeah,
1: we'll we'll be off to them. Come along. And uh, I guess, Andy, you and I will be off to uh, doing something else now, right? <laughs> what are you going to do?
0: Right now, yeah, I'm going to stop recording. I'm going to go have dinner.
1: Oh, okay. Sounds good. Yeah, I'm going to probably watch a ball game
0: What are you, the listener, going to do? (laughs) Write in, tell
2: us
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's right, write in uh, uh, We love hearing from the listeners on Twitter At Score Settlers It's been really fun to connect with some people About what they think about the movies So please continue to do that And then, uh, yeah, listen, if you've been enjoying it Or if this maybe was your first time listening Because you love Magnificent Seven And you started with this, go back listen to the other ones And also write us a review on iTunes That would be really swell
0: Sure would. I agree.
1: I'm glad you agree. I agree it would be swell. Uh okay Andy, let's uh let's listen to some more some more film music, Lex Okay, let's listen to the hapa. <laughs> we're
0: keeping this in. Did I get it? Are we done? Yeah, we're keeping this in. <laughs> let's listen to some more film music next time
1: all right you know i do you think we're gonna have to like come up with a different we arrived at this as our like closing catchphrase i never loved it
0: it's terrible it's nothing but i don't i still don't even like the title of the show what are you gonna do you have to shrug at some of this stuff
1: (laughs) we're stuck with it all right you're stuck with us hope you come back and stick with us again